This is a sermon from the Highlands Congregation of Park Church. We hope it helps you walk with the Lord and lead others to Christ. Learn more and find more resources at parkchurch.org. Good morning, Park Church. Today's scripture is from Psalm 119, verses 1 through 8, and then verse 160. If you don't have a Bible of your own, there should be one in the pew back. And if you don't have one at home, we'd love for you to take that as a gift. Um, Psalm 119, verses 1 through 8. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. In verse 160, the sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, worship team. Thank you, Audra. Um, It's great to be with you. If we haven't met, my name is Matt, and I'm one of the pastors downtown. So I'm usually downtown, committed to that congregation, and uh, it's a joy to be up here this Sunday morning. Um, Downtown, we have a little bit different situation with our officing in that we share an office with some other tenants. I went away for the 4th of July and came back and they had secretly changed the aerator on my kitchen sink. So I barely turned on the water and out comes this flood that just soaked me everywhere. And uh, this Psalm 119 is like that, like this torrent of verses on everybody's favorite topic, God's law, right? Um, Psalm 117, which we talked through two weeks ago, it's the shortest Not only Psalm, but it's the shortest chapter in the Bible at just two verses. It's interesting, the average length of a Psalm is just under 18 verses. This is 10 times longer than the average, 176 verses. And in those 176 verses, the law of God is mentioned 176 times. So it's like drinking from a fire hydrant all about the law of God. And before we get into that this morning, I want to point out something. You may have noticed that before verse 1, you see the word Aleph or Aleph in all caps. But before verse 9, you see the word Bet. Before verse 17, you see the word Gimel. And, and on and on it goes. Every eight verses has a new letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And each line in that section begins with that letter. Because this is a psalm that the Jewish people used to teach their kids. Um, had a pedagogical function of like, kids, you need to understand how critically important, how central to our life together is the Word of God, the law of God, and they used it that way. Now, this is like way too much to go through in kind of an expositional verse-by-verse sermon. And so what we're doing, we'll commit three Sundays to this one psalm, and we'll kind of take a topical approach. So this morning, I'm going to talk about God's Word over us, 
kind of focusing on its authority in our lives. Next week, we're going to talk about God's Word in us, like its transformative, inherent power to renew us from the inside out. And then week three, we're going to talk about God's Word to us, or God's law to us, of like, what what does it mean to us? What should it mean to us in the way that we treasure it? So I guess I get the fun one, which is about authority. So let's just just get off and running. Um, When I say God's Word over us, What I mean is this psalm is establishing for itself. It's saying God's word, the Bible, is is the authoritative standard for all of our lives. Okay? We are arranged under the word of God. And this text then is going to show us three things about that statement. We're going to see here there's a countercultural challenge here. Secondly, there is a call to commitment here. And thirdly, there's a character And there's also eventually a Christ that is revealed here. So let's look at those three main points this morning. Number one, I said there's a countercultural challenge. And you see this just in the first four verses that Audra read a few minutes ago, where seven different times, seven different ways, the writer says, you need to obey the word of God. And it's not a, a Tony Horton beach body coach, like do your best, forget the rest kind of encouragement. It's like, you need to do it perfectly. You need to do it blamelessly. You need to do it diligently, which is a word that means to obey in every single detail to the furthest extent possible. You need, the Bible says, you need to give God your whole heart. Okay. It's a lot. Um, I still remember my first day of Bible college, going off to university and get in line and they hand you this packet by your last name. And one of the first things you see in there is this student handbook, which I Googled over the weekend. And even though they've cut like half of it out, it's still 75 pages long, okay? And it's just like all these rules and restrictions and prohibitions covering everything imaginable. And then you go meet with your advisor and they have more rules for you. And then you go to class and each teacher is giving you their syllabus and they're saying, here's the schedule, here's the homework, here's all this stuff. And when you're looking at all this stuff on day one of college and you're like, wow, this is a lot of rules and guidelines and schedules and prohibitions. But the point is all of that collectively is saying, here's what you have to do to be successful here. You want to be successful in the academic environment. You want to thrive. This is what life looks like at Bible college. And in a similar sense, God is saying, if you want to be successful in life, then whoever you are and in whatever circumstances you find yourself, you have to submit yourself to the authority of my word, okay? Now to reinforce that point, the writer is gonna use 10 different words. You can go ahead and like kind of skim down through the chapter and turn a page and keep skimming. And you'll see this in almost every single verse. There's one of these 10 words that's reinforcing the authoritative standard. It's called God's law. It's called God's testimonies, God's ways, God's precepts, God's statutes, God's commandments, God's rules, God's judgments, God's word, and finally, God's promises. And the point is not saying 10 different things. Really, if you were to draw a big Venn diagram of the meaning of these words, you would realize like 80 or 90% of the meaning of those words overlap. And, And the focus is not like, hey, why did he say testimonies here? But he says God's way over here. They're really just communicating one big idea that, that God's commands, whether you call them commands or instructions or rules or even promises, but God's commands 
are the authoritative standard of right and wrong for our lives, okay? And you understand why I say that this is countercultural, because we are American. We are, we are allergic to authority, right? We, we do not like people telling us what to do, how to live. We like freedom and autonomy and independence. And we were gone for Independence Day, the 4th of July, but I saw on Nine News website, they did this flyover in their news helicopter. And they're like, here's a live stream from, you know, over the metro area on the 4th of July night. And everywhere you look, there were thousands of fireworks going off everywhere all over town. You know, even though we all know we're not allowed to have fireworks and shoot them in Denver. Everybody's like, you know what? It's my, it's my constitutional freedom to blow stuff up. It's the 4th of July, right? And so we're going to do it because that's, that's, that's our culture, is this independence. It's the it's this spirit of Invictus, like I am the master of my fate, the captain of my soul. No one tells me what to believe, let alone what I'm going to do. We have a very dominant ideology today called expressive individualism, just this idea of like I am my own authority, to go a little bit further, it's actually this idea that my own moment-by-moment moment subjective internal feelings are actually more authoritative in my life than established science, let alone a, a religious book that was written two or 3,000 years ago. My feelings, my opinions, my perspective are authoritative. So how does Psalm 119 sound to our culture? I mean, frankly, how does it sound to a lot of you? You're like, it's irrelevant. It's a relic of the past at best, if not downright offensive. So I want to pause for just a moment right here and let's ask for God's help. Lord, I just want to pause and seek you right now. I pray that we can hang in here for a few minutes so we can begin to see your heart of love toward us. Help us to learn to delight in your law the way the writer of this psalm did. Help us to see your steadfast love. And Lord, please give us life according to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, yeah, so you see how countercultural, how challenging, how even abrasive this psalm is when it says God's word has absolute authority over every single aspect and detail of your life. Why? Because it's God's word. And if it's not God's word, then who cares? But if it is God's word, let's go on to point two. If it is God's word, then there's a call to commitment to this book, to this word. Now, whether you believe this word or not, I know there are some of you here that are visiting with us this morning, maybe be your first Sunday, and you're like, I'm not committed to this book. I don't even like that you're talking about law and authority. Like, this is what I was afraid of when I walked into church. So bear with me for a moment. I want you to just assume that this word is true. I want you to just assume for the sake of argument, there is a God, he's given us his word, and his word tells us how to live. If that's true, if that's true, what are we being called to do with it? I think at a minimum, two things. Number one, we need to learn it, know it, understand it. Number two, we need to keep it. We need to observe it. We need to do what it says. And I want to take a moment just to unpack each of those. Number one, I said we need to learn it. You know, 11 times in the psalm, the writer asks God, teach me. Teach me your word. Teach me your statutes. Five times in the psalm, he says, give me understanding. That is, give me understanding of your word, but also give me understanding through your word. 
So that as I, as I know what the heart of God is saying, and I look at decisions in life, choices in life, and I'm trying to discern your will, I'm trying to discern right and wrong, and how many of you know it's not always black and white, a lot of times it's shades of gray, and we're like, God, I, I want to do your will, give me understanding through your word. We need to know it. What does this word mean? And I mean this individual word. What does this phrase mean? What is the history behind this statement? What's the context of this story? We look back and we say, you know, how have different people who love God and who love his law in different time periods and in different cultures, how have they historically understood or in other cultures that kind of push up against our culture, how do they understand what God is saying? And in all these ways, we're learning, we're understanding, we're increasing in knowledge and wisdom. And I just want to say, look, if we are over the Word of God. Like, my opinion is what matters. God's opinion does not matter, or I don't believe this is God's Word. If we are over God's Word, then it doesn't matter what it means. Who cares? But if, as most of you would say, yeah, I believe the Word is over me, then do you see why it matters that we know what it's saying? That we know what it means? That we understand some of the nuances of what it's instructing us to do this, not this. So I said, learn it, know it, understand it. Secondly, the, the second call to commitment here is the call to keep it. And the Hebrew uses two synonyms here 30 times in 176 verses. Keep it, keep it, keep it, keep it, keep it. Keep it is a word that means to pay attention to it, to show reverence for it, to, to guard it with fidelity and to obey it. It's also translated to observe. And we could all sit here and say, well, what if I don't agree with some of the rules? You know, what if I think like, you know, we've kind of moved on from the early 1900s, let alone the 1800s, 1700s, 1600s, and all the way back to when this was written. And I'm personally offended by some of the do's and don'ts. The, the call is still the same. It, your, your, your opinion of it is kind of irrelevant. It's like, keep it, do it. And I want you to think about this. Some of the things in this book that are most offensive to like a liberal progressive person or culture are the very things that a traditional person or culture are like, man, I love that stuff. I find that really easy to obey and vice versa. Some of the things that are abrasive to a more traditional person, a progressive may hear that and be like, I don't struggle with that. I struggle with this other stuff. And the reality is whether you're more like I have these urban sensibilities or I'm very rural or I'm very conservative or liberal kind of culturally speaking, whether you're, you're like that fiercely individualistic American, blow stuff up because I can kind of person, or you come from an honor shame culture. They're like, I would never even possess fireworks because if I were found with that, it'd be a shame to my entire family and I don't want that, you know? And some of you are that way. And my point is the Bible challenges and upsets. It pushes back on us all, sometimes in similar ways and sometimes in very different ways. Where the things that offend you about what this book claims over your life are not the same things that someone in Japan 50 years ago would have been offended by. So who's to say that you of all people in all places at all times have the right set of beliefs? Like what you're crossing off, you're like, no, not for our day and time versus the stuff that you keep. You know, this is something that C.S. Lewis called cultural or chronological snobbery, where like of all people in all places at all times, we finally got it right. People that agree with me, you know, in the generation that comes after you, they will think the same thing, that they're smarter than you are. 
And do you know, friends, that a, a part of what honors God with our lives is when we're wrestling with this book, we're trying to understand it, and we even come to places where like, God, I don't, I don't get this part of it. Like, I don't understand it. Or, or maybe you're like, I understand it. I'm not, I'm not doing that. This is offensive to me. This is a relic of some bygone, closed-minded, oppressive era. I'm not doing that. Part of what honors God is the posture that the psalmist, the writer takes here where he's just like, God, I, I don't get all this. This is not cool right now. Other cultures aren't doing this. Nevertheless, you are God. And I am committed to knowing your word and keeping it. Now, if that's your heart, how do you do that? And that's kind of the balance of this sermon now. Point three, well, how, how can we do that is that we need to see the character of God's word and ultimately we need to be pointed to the, the character of God's living word. So let's look at the character for a minute. And first of all, I wanna say, like assume a, a complete stranger walks up to you and says, hey, one year from today, I will return and give you a check for $100 million, okay? How many of you would like completely change your entire life based on that word of a complete stranger? And you'd be like, absolutely, I'd start, I'd start doing some charitable giving planning. I'd be like, what do I want to invest in? What do I want to blow some money on? What do I want to kind of flex on my friends and neighbors so they know I'm a hundred millionaire now? You know, how, how many of you would like quit your job, completely turn your life upside down based on the word of a stranger? I'll give you a hundred million dollars a year from today. No, none of us would. But let's say you got a name and you, you started researching and you realized, oh, this, this guy's for real. Like literally... Like once a day, he goes to a different person and he promises them $100 million. I don't know if it's Jeff Bezos or what, like, but he promises a different person every day $100 million. And 365 days later, every single time, he shows up and gives the person the money. And, and this is documented. Would that change things? Well, yeah, because now you know something about the character of this stranger who promised it to you. And my question is, how do you and I obey a God we've never even seen and can't see with like our physical eyes? Is we need to know his character. We need to study his character. We need to study the character of his word. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna fly through these, but I wanna show you five attributes or five characteristics that I think this entire Psalm summarizes the law of God and says it is these five things. Number one, the law of God is righteous. The character of God is righteous. And the psalmist uses two related words here, the first of which just means like something that's straight or level or upright, it's smooth. And the second word that's based on that first word is the idea of it's a measuring stick, it's the standard, it's the norm. Like you can hold your life up to it and your life will now be level and smooth and straight because it's compared to this perfect standard, okay? And to illustrate this, I want you to think of uh, a a cockpit of a pilot. You're climbing into this airplane. And on this dashboard with all these different buttons and dials and all these different things, there's one piece of equipment right there that's called an attitude indicator. I'll pass on the jokes, but there's so many there. It's called an attitude indicator. It used to be called an artificial horizon. And what this is, is internally it has a gyroscope that's spinning at a very rapid speed. So no matter what the airplane is doing around this device, the device is always level. Okay, and the reason that that exists is that the pilot can get in certain situations, maybe flying into a storm, 
where they can't see the ground and they, they can't really orient themselves or they're in the dark after the sun has set and they're flying in that part of the world or, or maybe just something, there's a distraction in the cockpit, they feel like they're kind of saving the plane, they're, they're, they're you know, glancing back at this just for a frame of reference that's always right. Like, can you imagine how important that piece of equipment is in the cockpit when you're like, I, I think I know which way is up or down, but am I banking to the right and down or am I flying level? And this piece of equipment will always tell you. Regardless of how you feel, regardless of your personal opinion on your orientation relative to the ground, this device is always right. And the psalmist is saying God's word is like that, that there are things that we're flying through storms in life, circumstances that, that kind of disrupt us and, and we get confused about like which way is up. And sometimes we're like, God, I, I would want to do your will, but I don't even know what that looks like in this situation. And the, and the psalmist is like, then look at God's word because it's always upright. And if, you, if you're looking at that, that will orient you to the reality of life. That's the first word, righteous. The second attribute is this idea of being tried and true. And again, he uses two words that mean it's sure, it's reliable, it's dependable, it's trustworthy, because it corresponds to reality. The very God who created all things also gave us a word. And when he says, do this and don't do this, the doing and the don'ting corresponds to the reality of the world that he put us into, okay? Look at uh, verse 140. There's this expression that says, your word, your, your commands are well tried. And it's the idea of putting something in a fire or in a furnace and both refining them, but also testing them, poking at them, evaluating them and saying, he's saying, God, over and over and over again, as people test your word and, and put it to the test, it proves to be reliable. It proves to be true. Maybe some of you do like we do, you're traveling maybe in a city, beach resort, like whatever, someplace you haven't been before. So you, you hop on the Google and the Yelp, you know, and you're like, okay, we got to do dinner tonight. We're picking a place for dinner. And you see one place that has 1,471 reviews and an aggregate score of like 4.8. And you start looking through them and people are describing these meals and you're like, ah, that sounds pretty good. And then you see another review and it's the restaurant next door and it has three reviews and it's a, it's a 3.0 because one reviewer gave it a one, one reviewer gave it a three and one reviewer gave it a five. And the guy that gave it a one says, I don't know, it was okay, wasn't like Taco Bell or anything, okay? And you're like, mm, you know, between those two restaurants, which are you gonna go to? It's the one that's tried and true. It's the one that other people have evaluated and the psalmist is saying here, God's word has been turned over and evaluated and poked at like that. And here's this string of evaluations that say, yeah, you know what? It bears out. It's true. It's right. Thirdly, we see that the word of God, the, even the commands of God are wonderful. He uses two words, wonderful and wondrous, that are slightly different. But don't miss the root word. If something's wonderful, that means it's full of wonders, like awesome incredible, astonishing, awe-inspiring. And this is where you get hopefully a little bit older in life and a little bit more mature and you start looking back at some commands that when you were kind of immature, you're like, that's dumb. What's the reason for that? And later on, you're like, oh, there's a lot of wisdom there. It's like being a parent where, or well, it's like being a kid. Like I actually kept a list when I was a kid. Um, I think I still have it somewhere. All the things that my parents do that annoy me that I will never do when I'm a parent. Um, <laughs> And, and, and then you gain a little bit of wisdom and you're like, there's actually something wonderful about what my parents were saying. 
um, and what it preserved me from and how good it was. Wonderful. Fourthly, eternal. Saying other laws come and go. They get voted out by the next ideology or politic that comes to power. Nothing lasts. We try different laws in our country. We're like, try this. Does this solve this problem? Nope, it doesn't. Let's try something else. And in contrast to all these things that are coming and going in the court of public, public opinion, God's word endures forever, literally into the everlasting. And then the fifth and final attribute I see here in this chapter, I save for last because it's probably the one we least associate with the commands of God. And that is that it's good and pleasant And the Bible here over and over is using the word from Genesis 1. You know the story? It's a poem. It's like God created the world in these seven days. And there's this very poetical structure of like God made this. And then God made this. And then God made this. And he called it good. And it's the idea of a comprehensive goodness. It is moral goodness, meaning it's, it's morally, ethically right. But it also means a philosophical goodness, a practical goodness, a, an aesthetic goodness, like it's beautiful. And it means of good quality. And this is how the writer can say in verse 96, I have seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. You know what he's saying? I've seen a limit to all perfection. So, you know, you're you're in that wonderful moment on God's good earth and you're like, I hope this moment never ends. And it does. Right? I give this amazing toy to my kids on Christmas and by two hours later, it is completely broken. Stuff wears out. The the, the good stuff wears out. There are limits. They break down. They pass away. But what he's saying is in contrast, God, even your rules are incredibly wide and expansive. And it's the idea, um, the implication figuratively is like I'm led into an open space. That your law is actually freeing and liberating and expansive rather than oppressive, which is what we often associate with the law of God. And that may even be your internal objection right now. You're like, but wait, like the laws of God constrain us. You know, God's like, don't do that. Do this. And by its very nature, that constrains us. And last time I was here a couple months ago, I used the illustration of guardrails on a windy mountain pass that do those guardrails constrain you? Yeah, it's like I can't go over there and way, way, way down there because this guardrail's here. But when you're driving that pass, that's actually a liberating thing that these guardrails are there keeping us in shape, keeping us safe. And I want to point out that when God does put constraints in our lives, and I'm not... I'm not playing games with you. He does. Lots of them. But those constraints always serve at least one of two purposes, and often both. Either God is protecting you from something harmful, and or he is promoting something healthy in your life. He's not just like, oh, how can I make people's lives miserable? Here, Moses, write this down. Um, but, but we have that impression of the will of God and the law of God. But in fact, with with wisdom and understanding and the context of love and covenant, if we were to really look at God's law and understand, we would realize like, God, you're saving me from so much pain, so much costly sorrow. Let me illustrate it this way. I'm just learning this summer how to e-foil. And in case you don't know what that is, like I didn't know a short while ago, we'll put a slide up here. It looks like this. It's kind of like a surfboard with a stem and then like underwater there's this propeller um, with a hydrofoil and uh, 
Marty's dad has a place up at Grand Lake, and his love language is buying us lots of expensive toys, and so we, we affirm his love language. Um, and, so, and so we got these this summer, okay? And what it is, like, you have this huge battery pack in the board, and you lie down on the board in the water, and you have this little remote control in your hand, and you squeeze the trigger, and it starts to go. The propeller's spinning, and it starts to go. And you get up on your knees, and then you stand up, and then you're surfing on it. And then once you get good, you kind of adjust your weight front and back, get it just right. And this whole surfboard like rises up out of the water. So only that little wing is in the water with the propeller. And you're like flying along. And it's just like crazy because it's like, it's about the height of the stage. And that's the water is like the floor. And you're like, this is so sick. This is awesome. You know, um, my wife is good at it. My brother-in-law, who's a South, Car- uh, South Carolina, Southern California surfer. He's great at it. Um, I'm terrible at it. So I fall a lot. So I'm learning how to fall. And you, you know something's bad when in the instructions it's like, make sure your last movement when you're falling is a controlled movement to get away from the board. L- literally, it's in the instruction video. So I'm like, okay, cool. Well, at one point in time, and I'll zoom in on this, there's, there's, there's this, little, this little contraption around the propeller, this little black plastic or aluminum circle. Um, I mean, thoughts on why that's there? Um, well... One of our family members, who shall remain nameless, broke that off. Um, so that was no longer there. And we're like, okay, this, this isn't good. Um, but then I was like, hey, you know, I'm going I'm to keep, I'll just try it. You know, what's the worst that can happen? And so I went, and I was like, wow, this is cool. It's, it's faster. Last, less drag in the water. This is awesome. Um, and, and there's so much seaweed in Shadow Mountain Lake that you're constantly getting stopped and slowed down because you're going along and that's underwater and it's grabbing seaweed and wrapping around the drive shaft and you have to like flip the whole board upside down and take that seaweed off. And without that guard in the way, it's so much easier to get the seaweed off and just get going again. So I'm like justifying in my mind how like, I know he is a guard, it's probably there for some reason. Um, in fact, my father-in-law ordered a new one and had it like drop shipped overnight to the house. And we saw it sitting there in the garage and knew we should conceptually do something with it. Um, so we didn't. So, um, so I, went out, I went out last week or almost two weeks ago now and uh, I, was, I was doing this and uh, I fell as I often do. And uh, the, the top of the board was going away from me, which means the bottom of the board was coming toward me. And I was like, oh, snap, that's not good. And that was kind of like my last thought. And so I turned away from it, and I felt this thunk in the back of my thigh. And I was like, oh, shoot, like the water's cold, and uh, that leg's like not moving. Um, and, I, and I put my hand back there to, and I, I won't go into details, but I put my hand back there, and my first thought, like it had like severed through my wetsuit and into my thigh muscle, where I was, my first thought was like, oh, shoot, I need surgery, like fast. So I'm like flagging down my wife, and, like who's back at the house, like kind of watching from the shore. And I'm like, I need help. And uh, um, nothing embarrassing about it at all. Chris, our executive pastor, just happened to get there right then. And he pulled me out of the water and there was blood. And, you know, it was, so, so 12 stitches and a $1,500 ER visit later, I was like, okay, I understand why that guard's there. And God just blessed me with a sermon illustration. Hopefully the next one doesn't cost $1,500. I'd love it, friends, if we could adopt that kind of attitude toward the law of God of like, God, even when you're dragging me kicking and screaming away from things that my heart deeply desires. 
and I'm justifying it in my mind because I'm like, I'm going faster. I can clean this better. I can get back at it. I can do my thing. Like it's not that bad. It's not that dangerous that we instead flip this mindset to like, thank you God for loving me so much that you always want to protect me from harm. You always want my life to be healthy. Look with me back at verses one and two. Blessed are those whose way is blameless who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. And if we were writing the song, we'd be like uptight, miserable, rigid. And he's like blessed, which means happy, which means flourishing. And this is my one big idea for you this morning. And it's all throughout this psalm. The psalmist is saying, human flourishing, your flourishing is the result of arranging your life under the authority of God's word. You want to be happy, you want to be healthy, like holistically healthy, spiritual, mental, emotional, relational, physical health. That is a byproduct of arranging our lives under the authority of God. And by the way, I want to point out that your, your decision this morning and throughout the course of your life is not, do I submit to God and his commands or do I run my own life? Because that's how culture tells you it works. Your actual decision, according to verses 133 and 134, are do I put myself under God's dominion or do I let other people rule my life or let sin itself rule my life? Rebecca Pippert says it this way, whatever controls us is our Lord, our authority. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by the people he or she wants to please. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord or the authority of our lives. I want you to think about this as, as we all, Christian or not, have different beliefs and convictions and standards for life. My question is, who taught you to believe those things? You ever think about that? Like just take something that, that almost the entirety of a certain subsection of culture believes with all their, they believe it passionately right now. Who taught them to believe that? Who taught you to believe that? And be like, well, I, I, no one, I think for myself. But the reality is with every single one of us, there are certain people, certain groups, certain tribes, certain ideologies that we're like, that person's an authority on this thing. So I'm going to listen to what she says. Or, or just like the current of culture is clearly on a trajectory and it may be in the back of your own head. Like, I don't want to be on the wrong side of history. I don't want to be weird. I don't want to be left out. I don't want to be canceled. And so we go along for those reasons, but someone's telling us what to believe. And does that person, do their standards, do they line up with the word of God, like, are they righteous? Are they true? Are they beautiful and wonderful and eternal and life-giving? And if not, we come right back to verse 1, which says, do I want to flourish in life? Do I want to be happy and healthy in life? Yes, we all do. We all want the good life. So where do we ultimately find that? In the authority of God's word over us. And that's such great news until you get to the very last verse of the chapter, which I, for one, am glad in there, is, is there. Because the Bible's saying this, you want to flourish, you want to be healthy, you want to be happy, 
then arrange your life under the authority of God's word. And verse after verse after verse after verse is this torrent of submit to this in every detail at every moment, no matter how you feel. And you're like, ah. In verse 176, the last verse says, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant. And that gives hope for people like me and you because we could all say, I've gone astray like a sheep. And some of you may be even in a very deep place of shame where you're like, I've, I've really messed up. Like, yeah, I, I know. Like, I believe conceptually, like, this is the word of God. I should be submitting to it. I should not make it submit to me. But I don't do that well. And if human flourishing is the result of submitting to the word of God, then what hope is there for people like you and me who have not done that very well? And so I just want to conclude by reminding us there's an even greater hope than the character of God's word, and that is the Christ, the Christ, the living word. That is, each Sunday as we're meeting together, we're not just unpacking a psalm. Every week we're going back to this. Where is Jesus? Where is Christ? How is this showing me my need or the fulfillment or something like that? So the, the bad news is God wrote these words. He gave these words in the days of King David, knowing all of us would disobey. All of us would earn the curse instead of the blessing. And it's so bad because he holds out the blessing, verses one through four. You want to be blessed? You want to be happy? You want to flourish? Just do this. And we're like, Awesome. And we fail. And that's bad news. But I share that bad news for this reason. Friends, the greater you understand and appreciate the magnitude of God's law, and the greater you understand and appreciate then the magnitude of the justice that you deserve, the greater will be the magnitude of your appreciation for God's grace when you get it. See, if we're minimizing the law and being like, eh, nobody's perfect, who cares? Or maybe even worse yet, if we're just like, man, praise God, we are saved, so we're free from the law, happy condition, you know, and you just don't care, then you won't love God's grace. You will not be moved and in awe of God's grace. And it's no wonder your life will have very little wonder. But if we're like, man, look at all these rules. How in the world? Like, I want to flourish, but it just goes on and on and on. And I fall short here and there and there and there. And the more we just say, God, I fell short, I repent, I confess, the more we're boasting in the grace of God. Because it takes more of Jesus, more of his grace, more of his forgiveness, more of his reconciliation to cover and to forgive and how he does that, and this is a familiar story for almost all of you, but God literally sends his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to say, where my loved ones have earned the curse instead of the blessing, I will go to a cross and I will be punished. I'll take the curse on myself so that my children can receive the blessing instead. And the half of the gospel that I think we don't preach enough is the positive side of that. that the other reason why Jesus came is not just to die for you and me. It was to live for you and me. His friends, you know the only person in the world who ever kept Psalm 119 perfectly is Jesus Christ. We could say Jesus Christ fulfilled Psalm 119 every moment of every day of his life saying, Father, it is your meat to do your will. 
I desire nothing but to do your will perfectly, diligently, blamelessly with a whole heart. And so when Jesus goes to a cross and he dies for our sin and he rises from the dead, he says, friends, by grace, my gift to you is my record of righteousness, that I was a law keeper. And if we know I'm forgiven much, Jesus says, then we'll love much. If we think we're forgiven little, we'll love little. And there'll be no wonder why we just have like basically apathetic churches of Christians that are like, yeah, praise God. I mean, whatever. Like, I like that song. That's, that passage didn't really do anything for me. Versus like, man, are you kidding to me? Like, Jesus, you extend to me the same invitation found in the last verse here that you say, when you're tired of running, when you're tired of screwing up your own life, all you have to do is say, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant. And he will. And by God's grace, he will chase after you. By God's grace, he will forgive your failures. By God's grace, he will give you his obedience on your record. He'll lead you into a wide place. And he'll say, here is flourishing for your today and your tomorrow and your forever. Okay, so the way we respond to that grace is not like, sweet, I got grace and I can go send my brains out and not care about the law of God. I mean, we're going to come to this in this series that by the time we get to week three, we're like, this is more valuable to me than all the gold in the world. I love your law because it teaches me something about the heart of the one who loved me so much that he gave himself for me. He lived the life I should have lived. He died the death I should have died. And so now I can arrange my life under his authority under his protective, loving care. And no, not perfectly. But man, is God good to deliver me from the curse, to put me in the column of blessing, and then day by day say, this is how life works. So go and be happy. Go and flourish by arranging your life under the authority of my word. Let's receive that grace, that offer of kindness this morning. Heavenly Father, we, we give this time to you. I pray we give our lives to you, God. We, we don't want to just be another church, either self-righteously, arrogantly boasting in how amazing we are compared to other people, because we are just not honestly that great in and of ourselves. But we do want to boast in Jesus. And we do want to boast in your law in the sense that it corresponds to reality when we are upside down because of trials and pain and betrayal from a close friend or even a spouse or a family member. And we don't know which way is up. We know we can go to your authoritative word. And it's like that gyroscope that just, it's always spinning. It's always level. It's always straight. It's always perfect. And we can reorient our lives to what is true. So thank you for loving us so much that you revealed yourself in your word and gave us a path to follow, the path of Jesus. And as we apprentice ourselves to Jesus, we use the law not as a means of earning your favor. We just use it in relationship because we know this is how your world works. And we just want to please you because we love you so much and we're so grateful for your grace. 
Thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and for the joy of all people. If you enjoyed this, make sure you share it with someone. We'd also love to hear from you on social media. Find us with at Park Church Denver. Lastly, more resources and info are available online at parkchurch.org. Peace and love.